Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch pod for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-host, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, I've already asked how you're doing tonight. This is the second recording for a little peek behind the curtain. So instead, I have to ask, what was your most recent noir monologue about? Uh, about the cat that is currently biting my foot. <laughs> Well, it was a dark and stormy night, and I was monologuing about how it was a dark and stormy <laughs> night, and then it got stormier and darker as a result, because the clouds, they obscured the moon and the stars, and and the fog, it obscured, it obscured the streetlights, and it was dark and it was stormy. <laughs> that's, that's what I've got for you. So... I do want to point something out, is that, like, it was a dark and stormy night, is actually, it's about a highwayman, like, the original story from a, from a highwayman, so, like, that predates noir, which I sort of kind of love. Fine. <laughs> it was what popped into my head, okay? I know, but I do find that <laughs> It funny. occurs to me that the joke, the joke that I made is not really, like, it doesn't necessarily land if you don't know that my cat is black, noir. Yeah, uh, maybe a little too nice, clever. Nice. That's fine, Philistines. Is it comes across particularly well in this auditory medium? Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So, uh, we're what episodes are we doing tonight, Justin? Um, we are doing episodes fifteen and sixteen. Those are No Surrender, No Retreat, and The Exercise of Vital Powers. I am going to be starting us off with No Surrender and No Retreat because guess what? It's about a ship battle. Um, and so I claimed it uh, because I get all I get all big ship battle. I, I want to claim this for myself. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start off with No Surrender, No Retreat, written by J. Michael Straczynski and directed by Mike Vehar. We open with Sheridan declaring that enough is enough. The snazzy snare drum beat. It's almost enough to think that you're watching the West Wing. The League of Non-Aligned Worlds has been summoned, and Sheridan says now that he's calling in for help from them in exchange for helping secure their borders. They cannot take any more from Earth. Sheridan declares that in exchange for continued support, any treaties must be declared void. Jakar, like a boss, reminds them that the actual Earth government has done jack shit, even against the shadows. They owe Earth nothing. Sheridan reminds the League that Clark's propaganda is targeting aliens and that they will be next once Earth has settled its own internal disputes, if Clark is not removed. Sheridan simply asks that they don't get involved and that a fleet stays at Babylon 5 for protection. Sheridan declares his plan. He's going to take back Proxima 3. He's going to take back Mars. Then they take back Earth. After the credits, Marcus rushes into the war room with fresh intelligence. Earth Force has a half dozen destroyers stationed around Proxima, with the colony running out of food and supplies. Marcus also reports on the ships and their captains, with the Heracles and the Pollux identifies as the ships that have shot at civilian targets so far. Sheridan wants to isolate the ships loyal to Clark and destroy those and try to turn the ones who might have issues with Clark over to their side. But Sheridan gives the order that once they're engaged, no surrender, no retreat. Love a good, not even a title drop, a season title drop. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. Um, in Londo's quarters, someone wakes Veer from his sleep with a surprise visitor, Garibaldi, who wants to see Londo, who isn't there. Veer lets slip that the campaign for Earth started and questions if Garibaldi's signing back on. Garibaldi says that he's going to fight in his own way, which is some mealy mouth shit. Um, in the war room, the White Stars are en route to the operational zone, and Sheridan is ordering some other White Stars to buzz Earth space to try to draw attention away from Proxima. Marcus is sitting in hyperspace with the squadron near Proxima, conversing with the Resistance, who is able to confirm which destroyers haven't fired on civilian targets. The Resistance contacts, however, come under heavy fire and are forced to cut off the transmission. 
Londo then visits Jakar in the latter's quarters, supposedly for the first time. Londo starts to be antagonistic, but stops himself. Londo is there to thank Jakar for helping save the Centauri. He tries to make amends with Jakar, but Jakar is having none of it. Londo admits that he has made some poor choices in the name of his patriotism. But he reveals the, cent- the Centauri government is going to officially support Sheridan and ask that Jakar have the Narn do so as well. He says that even if he does not know his enemies anymore, he wants to do right by his friends. He offers Jakar a drink to humanity, but Jakar refuses. Sheridan visits the troop as they are staging and lays out the plan to the Star Fury pilots. He identifies the Heracles and Pollux as hostile targets, but the Nemesis and Vesta have deliberately avoided firing on civilian targets. The others they can't be so sure of and will give, a chan- will give them a chance to surrender. As they zoom out to show the fleet, White Star 2 has the Babylon 5 crest on it. How they got the paint to stick on that ship, I will never understand. Okay, so this is a thing. It's a tattoo. It's, 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 it's chemically bonding to the hull. I think it's a tattoo because it's an organic material. Yeah. That, I or, really like the idea of a main bot out there with a tattoo gun. Mm-hmm. Or because the ship is alive like and, they can, and like it adapts and stuff. Maybe you can like program the hull. Oh, that would be cool. I like more like they after they tattoo each ship, they have to let it park for a few weeks and do aftercare, slathering on buckets of moisturizing cream. Space tattoo cream. Yeah. So on the bridge of the flagship in hyperspace, Sheridan orders the first squadron to take position and jump out to Proxima. We then cut to the bridge of the Heracles, where Captain Kelso, I mean, uh, sorry, uh, let me check my notes here. Captain Hall. Sorry, that's Dr. Kelso. He's like, it's literally the actor who plays Dr. Kelso on Scrubs. This is going to derail the entire episode because uh, it's all (laughs) I can think about, even though it was a great episode. (laughs) And sometimes when you have an actor in another role, they they blend in okay. You know, you have what's his name from uh, a couple of episodes ago as a ranger. Yeah, you have Bester. Or yeah, yeah <laughs> Koenig is Bester. This is just Doctor Kelso in an Earth Force uniform. <laughs> if you could, same hairstyle. Yeah, the only way you could make him look more like Kelso is if you put a, a, a doctor's coat over him. And had him yell at Turk on the bridge I, I, of an Earth Force. I'm sorry. It's Dr. Turkleton. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only way you could make it more like Kelso. It's really fucking hilarious and super goddamn distracting. It's it's great. Yeah, he gets a report on the fleet. The Nemesis and the Pollux are sent to intercept this White Star Squadron. The second squadron then jumps in from the jump gate, bracketing the Earth Destroyer group. Sheridan offers them surrender, but Hall refuses. The commander of the Vesta, a Captain McDougal, who is a friend of John's, responds to Sheridan, telling him Proxima broke away from Earth and they are just enforcing the law. John reasons with him and tells him that he's complicit with war crimes. Um, and, the sol- and that soldiers aren't machines and they need to think for themselves. Uh, Hall cuts the conversation short by opening fire on the fleet. Sheridan reluctantly orders the fleet to engage any hostile targets. However, the Vesta hangs back, refusing to engage under illegal orders. Hall orders his XO to take command. Several of the ships have not engaged, so Sheridan decides to force the issue, advancing on the destroyer Furies, closing the distance. He offers the captain a chance to stand down, and the Furies does not attack, and Sheridan declares it non-combatant. As the Vesta is approaching, McDougal, or Mackie, responds that the XO has been subdued by the crew, and they are non-hostile. The Juno withdraws, jumping away, and the Pollux is hit by a destroyed ship, uh, wrecking it in the process. The Nemesis surrenders, and Sheridan orders Captain Hall on the Heracles to surrender. Hall refuses to surrender, saying that Sheridan won't shoot at them. His Exer refuses to have him risk the lives of the crew, however, and relieves him from command, and signals her surrender in the release of Proxima 3. I now have semantic satiation for the word surrender. (laughs) I'm, yeah, it's like, there's a lot of surrendering. Uh, yeah. It's like three times the same paragraph. Well, I, that's not something I'm usually looking for in my rhyme. So anyways, uh, Sheridan refuses to consider it a victory, however, but orders the captains of the defeated fleet brought aboard. There, I changed it. <laughs> I ad-libbed. Sheridan offers the assembled captains a choice. They can return to Earth to stay at the pro- 
to stay at Proxima to protect it from further retaliation or to join Sheridan. Hall's XO says that she can't help the military dictate policy, but Sheridan reasons that Clark's government has become the enemy of Earth. He says that he's willing to let people decide if what he did was right once Earth is safe and in the hands of the people again. Mackie asks for them to talk it over. Back on the Zocalo on B5, Jakar joins Londo at the bar and has a drink with him. He tells Londo to issue the joint statement of support of Earth, so long as their signatures are not on the same page. <laughs> uh, McDougal visits Sheridan on the bridge of White Star 2. The Heracles is going to re- uh, return to a neutral port. The Furies will stay at Proxima, and McDougal and the remaining captain want to sign on. As the voice of the Resistance broadcasts the liberation of Proxima, Garibaldi books a one-way trip to Mars. This is a hell of an episode. It's a hell of an episode. I think this is what, like, this might be one of my favorite. uh, So I think that battles are hard to do, especially if they're like, if you want to have it be a big part of an episode and not have it be done quickly, because you have to establish stakes and changing stakes in there. Mm Mm-hmm. I think something that is very interesting is that this is not just a straight up fight. It's an engagement, but there is a lot of moving parts here, including the the, the uncertain loyalties of many of the captains and crews. Yeah, because yeah, a lot of the time in the battle is spent trying to assess who's on what side. Yeah. Yeah. I like that bit of it as well. Like there's 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 like a little bit of tactics with like one white star squadron jumping far away and the other coming from the jump gate so they have like a a pincer, um, <laughs> but um, like there's not it's not about the tactics or even the fight it's about uh, discerning loyalties. I I really like that. I thought that as a space battle and sort of showing Sheridan as a commander as like a fleet commander I thought it was a good demonstration. The only part I didn't like is that it was somewhat unbelievable in that he did not commit any war crimes <laughs> in the execution of this battle. I mean, the only one he could have had was to shoot a surrendering ship, but that sort of goes against the entire reason they're fighting it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's um, near, the, near the end of the episode, we can also see that the Alexander is back, which is exciting. Mm. That's a big ship. I didn't catch that. We see it on it. We see it very briefly on screen cool. that it joins the fleet at Proxima. Nice. I can't believe that it's Doctor Kelso though. Oh my oh god! Oh my god! It's so funny because it's just like this is a perfect character for for that actor to play, but yeah. it's just so funny. <laughs> yeah, it, it's too distracting for me. Uh, it it definitely takes away from the episode a little bit for me, honestly, because it's hard to like buy him. It it makes it. S- it should be like a dramatic episode and it makes it seem a little bit slapstick that it's Kelso. Yeah. Nothing against like the episode, like JMS or the show, but the episode's great. It's just an unfortunate problem. Just like, yeah, it's the reason that home alone two is ruined now. Yeah, exactly. It's just that he's so recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The, the Jakar and Londo stuff in this episode is so good. Oh my God. It's perfect. Yeah, I love that Jakar, who has been on this amazing spiritual arc these last couple seasons, like, he's grown, but not that much. Like, he's grown (laughs) a ton, but not so much that he's going to let Londo off the hook. Well, and and I actually feel like that's, I really like the degree of growth that we've got, because I think the decision to just not engage with Londo, he doesn't throw a fit. He doesn't like yell at Londo to like get out of my room or whatever. Like he just sort of like he's angry, but he like sits there calmly, lets Londo like run himself out. And like you expect when he when Londo pours in that drink, right? You know, that you expect that Jakar is gonna take that drink and like throw it on the floor or something like that. Because that's what season one Jakar would have done. Yeah. And instead, he very carefully and precisely pours it back into the flask and hands the flask back to Malari. Yeah, it's a level of restraint that's really interesting there. Yeah, I, I just really like that it's, like I said, he's he's gone through an, an, an enormous amount of growth, but there's still that line that like, you know, I'm I'm growing as a person, 
but you still fuck you still fucked my home world and yeah you're still you and i are still not good and, and londo is so good in that scene too because it's like londo is seems to be genuinely attempting to turn over a new page here but he's also still such an entitled prick yeah i may have made some mistakes <laughs> he's like <laughs> yeah, like the I may have made some unwise decisions. Like, and Jakar's like, yeah, like mass oh. drivering my planet. You want like yeah, that one? Like I have made some poor choices in the name of patriotism. And Jakar just like, bitch, what? Yeah. And then and then Londa's like, I came in here and apologized, and I don't get anything for it. I yeah. th- that's not how this works. I'm supposed to come here and be nice to you, and then you're nice to me back. Do you want to yeah. talk about leverage for a moment? Yes. So, in uh, the new season, uh, the the new 2021 for people in the, the and because <laughs> God willing, we will get more seasons uh, of Leverage titled Redemption. There's a character played by Noah Weil who replace who uh, replaces one of the characters in the show, and they explain the idea of the new title of Redemption. Redemption is not a thing you you seek. It is a thing you actively work towards um, that you must constantly be doing through actions. Like the, that redemp- redemption is not seeking the forgiveness of your of the people you've wronged uh, for your own satisfaction, but it is instead working to undo the wrongs you have done. Yep. Lando's maybe starting to have an inkling of that. Yeah. But is like the progress bar is stuck at about three percent yeah and he's gonna get beach balled if he's not careful um do we have anything else about this episode um i mean the, the, the ship stuff is really cool i do like that like sheridan like there he he like the, the focus he has on like i don't want to shoot people who don't deserve it is honestly like i think it's like he wants to try and do this like civil war how he sees as like the right and just way. Mm-hmm. Like he sort of doesn't want there to be any possibility that like he could be like people could be throwing the wall at him because he's already fucked that up on the new on the on the the propaganda front. Yeah. Yeah. Um and like and really this is where he's best at is the he's he's best at fighting a war. Yeah. I have a couple of things. So the first is that the costuming for Veer with the bedhead Yes. It's genius. Mimbari bedhead is such a fucking wild concept. I love it. Yeah. Where his it's like his his like whole fringe is like askew and like smushed on one side and like fluffy on the other. It's great. Um also poor poor Veer. He's like clearly having like a murder nightmare. Corwin is back. So that's yeah. our our boy is back. Yep. Uh, and the 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 other small note I have on this is there's that scene with Sheridan and Ivanova in the war room, and this is this is a directing choice I think that was god awful where they've got it with like him looming over her shoulder, and it just gives me hives every time I watch it where where he's just sort of like looming over her shoulder and like talking to her like that rather than like them turning to face each other. It's just got this like creepy vibe to it that i hate yeah no i get you oh i want to talk like there's a couple things that i'm like that that i do love um just because it's like it's one of the few episodes where we get a specific date it's september 2nd 2261 this is less than 240 years in the future okay (laughs) i just find that very funny as like yeah. It's not even a quarter of a millennium in the future. Let's see. What was 240 years ago from today? Uh, that would have been 1871 or 1881. Hold on. Well, let's do some math because 1781. Um, Close. 1781. Okay. So, like, this is when the Constitutional Convention's going on. So That's uh, wild. A little... I don't know. I feel like that's actually not, like... Yeah. I mean... To go from the con- to to go from the the American colonies to you know pocket computers and the super the the supercomputing age and I guess we sort of fucked around with space for a little bit there. Uh, 
I, I figured 240 years is not a crazy amount of time to go to space colonies and Especially shit. since we've established that, like, humans aren't, like, independently that far advanced, right? No, like, they, they bootstrapped they got- off the Centauri and the yeah. Dilgar right. and, other, and other people. Right. They can make big ships. Oh, so they've got that going for them. They can use jump gates. They got guns from the Narn. Yeah. Otherwise, it's all Nutrigrain bars and, you know, yeah. nylon jumpsuits. It's And, like, who knows what the Centauri gave them to start. Like, they could have, the Centauri could well have been, like, you know, I'm going to hand you, I'm going to hand you the, the directions on how to do fusion. Just hand us all of your squid. I'd rather not think about what they wanted squid for. <laughs> oh, the other thing that I find just like that that I love is there's a specific line when Londo goes into Jakar's room and he starts being a catty bitch because like, he's he just, Londo. And, and then he stops himself and he says, Isn't it amazing how quickly we fall into familiar patterns as soon as we come into one another's orbit? And it is the best fucking line. It is yeah. like it is like something I would have read out of like some good like eighty thousand word like slow bird fanfic. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. I'm just like Yeah, no, it very much is. That whole scene is basically Londo doing exactly that. Like that he he'll like ramp up the like instinctual aggression and then be like nope okay calm down take it down a notch and then like but then it ramps up again yeah like over and over again mm-hmm. as he's talking to jakar and jakar's just like sitting there like doing his taxes or something surfing reddit he's gotta he's gotta work through his copy edits for the book of jakar yeah okay are we on to 416 um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, listen, like, we already have, we know that face. We spent half the episode talking <laughs> talking about it. Yeah. I love, I love uh, McDougal. Or McDougan. McDougan? Yeah. Yeah, McDougan. Um, he's, he's fantastic. Yeah, he looks familiar. Um, what was he in? I love that we have the context of him being a giant nerd with Sheridan back at the Academy. Oh, yeah, it's delightful. Okay. Most important thing I think on here is that he, he was um, he was in Deadwood. Um, also did some General Hospital and stuff. But yeah, I don't think too big there. Oh, he was in the Big Lebowski. He was a cop nice. in there. What about the commander, the, the XO there? Oh my god. Oh my god. The XO on the, the, the Heracles is Helen Lovejoy from The Simpsons. Oh my god. <laughs> Wow. And Maude that's, Flanders. That's that fucking a wild cut. That's that wild. Is so good. Okay, those are the two. Those are the two. That the I was like, we have to like, we didn't check these. And I was like, oh wait, these are gold. Oh, and Steve and, and one of the direct one of the usual directors of the show played a Pokemon ambassador. <laughs> Alright. Alright. Um Exercise of Vital Powers. Jude, take us away. So, uh, right at the top, I will put a brief content warning on this episode. Uh, there is a scene in the second part of this summary uh, involving a suicide attempt. Um, it's not super explicit, and we're not going to linger on it, but if that is a thing that you watch out for, uh, just be aware of it. The episode opens on Ivanova doing a voice of the resistance, telling us that the long march towards Earth continues with the Liberation Fleet having freed Proxima 3 as well as another colony and a military base. We transition to Garibaldi's personal log, who is in full QAnon mode, ranting furiously about how Sheridan never would have gone against their own before he went to Zaha Doom. There are some very good people on the other side, after all. It's a personal choice to side with a fascist dictator, after all. His body! His choice! He's back on Mars, a planet he says humans have no business being on. Uh, in a transport, Wade tells Garibaldi he has put on a, he has to put on a blindfold to see Edgar's. Garibaldi scoffs, but Wade insists. There's a long digression here about the fact that Wade has a master's in literature, which is so fucking weird and insane. Uh, I'm glad that an <laughs> MFA can still get you a job in the future, even if it is as a creepy henchman. 
Uh, but the whole scene is fucking bananas. It means that I have a hope. Yeah, right. Uh, Garibaldi eventually relents and puts on the blindfold. In Edgar's palatial Martian habitat, the first person which, Garibaldi which he, runs he into... apologizes for it being very small. Yeah. Of yeah. course, in true billionaire fashion. Yeah. The first person Garibaldi runs into, however, is Lise, of course. Uh, and within, like, four words, Garibaldi starts busting her chops about their relationship. Uh, but thankfully, they're interrupted by Edgar's in the flesh, who turns out to be kind of a hilariously old man for Lise. Like, he's got a good 20, 25 years on her. Not like dead walking old, but old enough that if he had kids, they'd be scheming to get him declared mentally incompetent so they could take over his company old. Like, it's weird. Edgar's dismisses Lise to take care of dinner, which is not at all patronizing or patriarchal, uh, and then asks Garibaldi point blank why he's there. Garibaldi says he was sick of not seeing who he worked for. Translation, stop waking me up in the middle of the night, you fuckwag. <laughs> <laughs> and then he wa- and that he wants help stopping Sheridan's military invasion of Earth. No, he wants to stop the he wants to stop the uh, the, the the fascist uh, militarization of the hotel chain. <laughs> Sorry, <Bite me. laughs> uh, Edgar's agrees that military action is not the right way to stop Clark, but wants to know why he should get involved. Garibaldi doesn't want Sheridan killed, but says that Edgar's would be in a position of power if he were to stop him. Maybe even the next president. Uh, I sh- I, I want to point out here that uh, I spelled president Perzadetin in the outline. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, Edgar says he's not going to do anything until he knows that he can trust Garibaldi. Uh, Wade shows him to his room which is barely big enough to fit the bed, and leaves him for the night. He is awoken abruptly when masked figures barge in and drag him out of bed into a spotlit room containing a single figure, a telepath. Edgar's voice appears to tell him that the telepath would be scanning him for the truth of his statements, and that they grabbed him out of bed so he would be jumbled and unprepared for questioning. This seems extremely normal, and continues to grow our confidence that Edgar's is not at all a sociopath. I mean, this, this again, just seems to be normal billionaire stuff. Yeah. If Elon Musk could have a telepath drag his subordinates out of bed for truth scans, he would absolutely do it. 100%. Oh, yeah. Uh, he wants to know first what Garibaldi thinks of telepaths. He says that they suck. Uh, the telepath nods. Was he telling the truth about someone? Sheridan. Nod. What does he think Edgar's is really doing on B5? He responds, you're doing something shady. It's obviously more illegal than you're letting on. You're obviously lying. What do you remember about your missing time? And he says nothing. And the telepath goes, uh, uh. And lastly, he asks if he's still in love with Lise. He says no, but you don't got to be a telepath to know that's a load of horse shit, which the telepath <laughs> confirms. The telepath is instructed to wait in the room for her payment uh, after Garibaldi leaves and Wade arrives to kill her. Which fucking sucks. Yeah. Edgar's uh, finds Lise waiting for him afterwards uh, and tells her that Garibaldi never mentioned her and he believes that he has moved on. She is transparently upset about this. (laughs) These two fucking idiots deserve each other. I mean, not really, because... Nobody deserves Garibaldi, but like they're both fucking idiots, and uh, everybody in this situ- in this weird triangle of terrible people uh, are terrible. And I hate everything about this episode so far. The next morning, over OJ, a an apparently rare luxury on Mars, Edgar's and Garibaldi get down to brass tacks and discuss the real business at hand. Edgar's fears a war with telepaths is coming. Clark empowered them during the war. And now, facing Sheridan, Edgar's and the other megacorps fear he'll give them even more power. And that's an unacceptable risk to, to, quote, their timetable for removing Clark from power. Uh, He says to get the rest of the information, Garibaldi will have to buy into the uh, full membership, so to speak, of Team Edgar's. Uh, That evening, Lise brings Garibaldi dinner. And he proceeds to ask, like a fucking idiot, 
demanding to know what Edgar's has that he doesn't besides treating her politely and to all appearances, actually liking her and not treating her like property. I feel like this is still questionable, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, at a bare minimum, he doesn't... He, he does not center everything on himself uh, when it comes to talking to her. And I mean, he does. They're both awful, but he's yeah. at least polite, like marginally polite uh, and does not treat and her like property. Despite the fact that her, her only purpose in this house appears to be f- to fetch meals. <laughs> but he he says it politely, which is more than Garibaldi can say. Garibaldi treats her like a like a like a, a piece of property to be displayed and is offended when she shows any interest or uh, attention to anyone else. They argue about the relationship, but it's Garibaldi and the whole scene sucks. Uh, elsewhere, Edgars and Wade look on, look in on three patients under weird, wacky plastic hoods. They talk about being off a drug and how they're in pain and. Edgar's acts all sympathetic, and then as soon as they're out of earshot, he's like, they're already in a lot of pain, and we should we should minimize their pain in the world, so go ahead and put them down like fucking dogs. Later, Edgar's is sitting on the couch reading a book, which apparently is the Bible, according to J- a JMS Speaks answer, which is fucking weird and not at all creepy, um, <laughs> and says he's all the way in. Edgar's informs him that the price of being all the way in is a way to get to Sheridan. Garibaldi, an idiot, agrees and gives it up. Sheridan's father needs a rare drug, and he agrees that he will help set Sheridan up using his father's medical necessity. That's what I think of that. Okay. Now we get on to you're, our you're missing. Plot. You're missing the, the, the voiceover, the, the final noir voiceover. No, I refuse. <laughs> I don't care. It's just Garibaldi being... QAnon Garibaldi. It doesn't add anything. He's just terrible. Yeah. Uh, in case you missed it, this whole this whole plot sucks. It doesn't do it. I mean, presumably it's doing something, but I hate Garibaldi in ev- literally every moment of it. And I get the impression that like JMS hated Garibaldi at this point too and was like intentionally writing so that you would hate Garibaldi as well. That's my sense on this episode. Uh, B-plot. In MedLab, Franklin is being a doctor, not playing resistance leader, not creeping on the ladies, but like doctor and stuff. Uh, he's trying to remove the implants from the telepathicals, uh, but they are showing every att- they are resisting every attempt, and he's clearly frustrated. Granted, it's Franklin, so he's showing zero concern for life. He's offended at being outwitted. Not that these patients are still, you know, popsicles. Alan shows up to chat, I guess, uh, and reassures him that he'll figure it out. But it's Alan. Anyone who takes that doof at his word is asking for trouble. Plus, there's no evidence whatsoever that he'll actually manage to do that. Uh, when Franklin is distracted, Alan goes to bother his favorite target, Lita, who has showed up for some reason. He wants her to scan the victim of an assault to help them remember and ID their attacker, which sounds like a shitty job. Uh, but she takes it. Uh, as long as he agrees to an extra 10% if she has to experience the attack. That's a crappy life to live where you have to charge 10% if you have to relive a violent assault. After he leaves, she looks at the telepathical, hearing the sound of shadow ships. Suddenly, the telepath awakes. But as soon as Franklin distracts her, he collapses back on the ground. She runs off before Franklin can say anything, uh, but he chases her down in the corridor, and she eventually explains what happened. She instinctively silenced the sound of the shadow ship, and that woke the telepath. Franklin more or less begs her to come back and help. If not for him, then for them, her own people. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that this is not, that even though this is like a high pressure cell, it's a relatively like not gross one. Like this is Franklin being like, okay, and I'm really not, I really hate this. I don't hate Franklin. He's being intense, but not gross. And I'm not. I don't know how to handle this Franklin. Just admit that season four Franklin is fine. Clearly reluctant. She nonetheless agrees <laughs> to return to her gig with Alan to help him. Back in med lab, Franklin hooks up the telepathicals to record their brain waves and then tells Lita to begin. It goes great. Uh, this is where your content warning comes in, <laughs> folks. Uh, upon awakening, 
The guy thinks Franklin is one of the creepy big head aliens who implanted him with all the alien tech and attacks him. Franklin tries to calm him, but all that does is make the guy question why he exists. He grabs a unnecessarily gigantic and gaudy scalpel that Franklin has just left hanging out near the... Why there is a gigantic weird scalpel there, I don't know. But he grabs it uh, and tries to kill himself, but Lita stops him telepathically uh, and then tells him to sleep and he falls back asleep. We have a C-plot. It's very short. In the fleet on the White Star. Sounds like the start of a rhyme, but it's not. Ivanova FaceTime Sheridan to let him know two ships sent to destroy B-5 have defected, making that five total that day. Sheridan, rather than being pumped, is worried. He calls Franklin to ask him about the telepathicals, but Franklin demands to know why. Franklin clears MedLab and Sheridan tells him, but we don't hear what it is. Leaving MedLab, Lita asks why he looks so shook. He tells her that he doesn't like the order Sheridan just gave him. He never thought that Sheridan changed all that much after Zahadum, but the Sheridan before never would have asked him to do what he's just been asked. He tells her that they're to pack for a trip. They're going to Mars. Finn. I feel like this just indicates that Franklin was too busy with his own shit in seasons two and three and wasn't paying attention. Yeah, I feel like Garibaldi and Franklin were not paying attention to, like, Sheridan, like, you know, when he was breaking away from Earth. This is, yeah. Yes, this is exactly my point. He's like, w- at one point, Garibaldi says in this episode, the, the, the Sheridan from before would never would never turn on our, would never do something like this, would never turn on our own people. I'm like, you mean like when he broke away from Earth and destroyed a, 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 one of our own, one of your own ships? literally outside your window you big fucking dummy where you literally shot earth marines in a boarding action yeah like defending against a boarding action like listen okay i know how it goes like garibaldi like garibaldi is obviously like like to 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 be at this from like a real perspective here garibaldi has gone through serious trauma and that has fucked him up significantly enough that like this is he believes that like, he believes that something has changed. And it happens to be that when Garibaldi got abducted, had a humongously traumatic event, was probably psychically tampered with. I mean, just putting it out there. Yeah. I mean, like, Bester pretty much implies that, like, there that he's at least knows what happened to Garibaldi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, like, I think, like, Garibaldi truly believes that something has changed. Even if we don't, like, and I think part of this is that, like, he isn't able to say, like, like, he's able to say this was this wouldn't have happened before, even though we have direct evidence that it has happened before. And, like, this is, I think we can clearly, like, indicate that Garibaldi is not thinking clearly. Franklin just wasn't around for this plot. <laughs> Yeah. Like yeah. he had some uh, he had some of his own shit to deal with, so he could just be like, "Wow, that escalated yeah, quickly." Franklin was Franklin was getting high and creeping on the ladies. He he was busy with other stuff. Like yeah, he had his own he had his own problems with now, and like I don't know what he's even been asked of, but he could just be like, "Wow, that's drastic." Yeah, <laughs> like he does, he never gets brought in on any of those. Yeah. Which is very funny. I feel like I I really wish that this episode's Franklin is the one that we had all along, because I feel like I feel like this is what they were originally aiming for, where we've got somebody who has a shitty bedside manner, is like brusque and rude and obsessive. But he's good at his job. Yeah, like he's good at his job. (laughs) And he and he I mean, I hate to admit I'm going to hate this part, but. He genuinely wants to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's more motivated by the desire to like not be outsmarted than he is by like caring for yeah. his patients. But ultimately, he wants to do the right thing, and he still is making ethical choices. Yeah, and like there are plenty of doctors who practice now who um, are more motivated by the desire to be 
clever and yeah. more more ex- more motivated by excellence than by patient outcomes. Yeah, that the the excellence is like yeah, I have the like whatever percent sur- surgery success rate. Yeah, uh, or whatever, and like that doesn't necessarily mean that they are bad doctors. Like some of them are very good at their job, but like yeah. they're also assholes. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you. If this is the Franklin we'd had from the beginning, I probably would not have had this whole bit with Franklin. Uh, but it, it, yeah, it's a better version of Franklin. I will grant you that. And I, I don't quite remember what happens with like the rest of Franklin's arc over the next season and a third. Um, I but don't I really remember season five at all. <laughs> I mean, I remember I... like. The high, I remember specific points, but like I, for, for all the tea in China, I could not tell you what Franklin does in season five. <laughs> but I, 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 hope that, I hope that like we continue with this form of Franklin where like yeah. he's allowed, he's allowed to be an asshole. He just like get rid of the stupid romantic subplots and we're fine. Yeah. Don't let him creep on the ladies. Yeah. Uh, I super duper hate Garibaldi in this episode and literally every scene he's in. Yep. Um, and I, I stand by my argument though, that I think this is the, I really do believe that this is where JMS like started to hate the actor playing Garibaldi. Cause this is about, this is what, when like Jerry Doyle got like real deep into like the nineties alt right. Yeah, and I don't actually know that JMS had a problem with Jerry Doyle, but it feels like maybe he did. Uh, it's just bizarre to me that Garibaldi is supposed to be a character you like. Yeah, and and the writing in this arc has shifted from like, oh no, poor Garibaldi, he's being a jackass, everybody, but it's because he's brainwashed, and so like we should, we should feel bad for him, even though he's being a tool, um, to like, no, no. He's just full on awful and he's always been awful yeah. just because he's, he's being awful about things that aren't related to the brainwashing at all. Yeah. Like, you know, Bester's psychop programming or whatever the fuck it is, isn't telling him to be a jackass to lease. He's doing that all on his own. Yeah, exactly. This has really confirmed for me that if we, if we were in charge of a reboot, I would just stay entirely away from security because I don't, it just feels like you can't do a security chief on this show without having them be shitty characters. I don't know why that is, but it certainly seems to be the case because Garibaldi is an awful character and Zach Allen is not much better. Because 90s cop tropes. Yeah. More or or something. I I think you can like change, if you change how it works in the show, I think you can do it. It's just like they're leading on specific tropes here and it sort of just falls into bad patterns. You need, you need to Corwinize it, you know? Um, so, so I want to talk about like the opening monologue here, Absolutely. which is like, which as, as a fan of noir and the, the, I will say this is like before we get like the great run of like late nineties, early odd stuff that sort of just gives us the revival of the genre neo-noir. Like, for example, like, I mean, a 20 year old blonde will be able to deliver a better noir monologue than Jerry Doyle. Yeah, <laughs> love you, Veronica Mars. You are the best. You you, you were the, you were the formation of my, my teenhood. Um, so, but Garibaldi just like tried to do like this cool guy door monologue. Sounds like a guy reading a grocery list. <laughs> it's like it's just like you're not cool. <laughs> It's yeah. just, that's really what it comes to. Either if you're a noir protagonist, you have to have some mixture between cool and fucking loser. <laughs> and like, and like, Jerry Doyle isn't like, he doesn't even give off loser vibes. Or like, he doesn't give off amicable loser vibes. No, he gives yeah. off like garbage, like alt-right vibes. Yeah. Like yeah. He, yeah. he well the thing is he gives off the exact vibes that Jerry Doyle gives off which is right-wing radio host vibes. Yep. Well and and I found like this episode to be super uncomfortable to watch in 2021 because like we've got Garibaldi like he's bought into the Fox News propaganda mm-hmm. hook line and sinker. He's spouting the QAnon conspiracy theories about how like 
Sheridan has Mimbari war syndrome and just needs to get the proper treatment and like all of that fucking nonsense. Yeah. And it's just like, it's not fun to watch. It's disturbing. No, absolutely. It's, it can be entertaining to watch fictionalized versions of current events. And then it can, there, there can be times when it's like, I'm not this. I don't find this entertaining. Like this is a little too close to home. And in this case, it's like, accidentally too close to home and yeah. i'm not i i don't i'm not particularly enjoying a character that is in theory a protagonist acting like the kind of people that are killing people in yeah. in real life like yeah jerry jerry doyle jerry doyle is like has the energy of somebody who is like into like you know is like you know if, well, not, pretty not, close not, to dropping and a it's, slur. And it's the, yeah. it's the well, reminder that, like, it's not quite that anyone can fall into this stuff, but... There is a specific type. I, I mean, yeah, there is a specific type, but, like, you know, throughout se- throughout seasons one, two, and three, like, we never found Garibaldi to be an enjoyable character, but, like, he was never portrayed as being stupid, right? And he, like you know, has generally been portrayed as being someone who was, you know, very, you know, had his eyes very much open to what others' ulterior motives would be, etc. And then to see him, like, devolve into this is, like, disturbing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, God, what else do I have on this? Um, I, I think that, like, one thing that has aged, like, particularly well is that, like, William Makers is like, we were fine with a fascist dictatorship, but now it's cutting into our bottom line yeah. and our secret control of Earth. And yeah. it's like, well, that's that's uh Yeah. That's fitting. Well that's believable. I do think though that there's more to specifically more to Edgar's angle than he's letting on with Garibaldi. Yeah. Because clearly, uh and this is me speaking from a point of view of someone who disliked this plot line enough the first few times I watched this show that I have completely forgotten exactly what Edgar's plan is. Um, <laughs> that same it clearly he's got something nefarious going in, in mind for the telepaths that he's going to try and do. So I don't think it's just his profits. He's out. He's on the lookout for, but certainly like his whole thing that he says to Garibaldi about like, we were fine with Clark as long as he was only oppressing our citizens. But now that he's like, fucking around with our pro- with like the our ability to operate as mega corporations that's where we draw the line yeah and for edgar's it's clearly like i don't care if you oppress people but if you oppress us with telepaths then that's a that's a no-no now we have to take you out so uh i i, I feel very much like the whole yeah god i fucking you know you know what the thing is that bothers me in this stupid episode the most with Edgar's is that that whole thing with the orange juice has got to be nonsense, right? Because like Babylon 5 has fresh orange juice and it's been like a major plot point because they have a big hydroponic garden. Mars would also have large hydroponic gardens in which they could grow things like oranges. Unless it's earth orange juice. Unless he's, what he's basically saying is, (sighs) I'm too good for Martian orange juice. I flew orange juice up from Earth just to show you how big my dick is. What a tool. I, I think I think a part of it might be because it seems like Mars is not very terraformed. I mean, yeah, um, it's not. It's all my, my dome, thing. So, yeah. yeah. So my thing is, I think it is. I think it's a heat thing. Mm. Like that, that, that the temperature like in a dome, like comparatively is not quite right. To do to, to like maybe grow oranges there. That's my that's Versus my head a cylinder cam. in the middle of space. I mean, you've got, it's probably easier to heat. It's probably easier to heat in a nail cylinder than. It, I mean, I, that's that's at least my yeah. theory. Could yeah be. yeah. Um, I I think it's like it, it's it's a controlled environment that like there's less going on, and you've got like a huge you've got a whole bunch of fusion reactors that are generating heat. Um, so I thought about this, and he said Valencia, California. Which which immediately got my gears turning. <laughs> this is a joke that was made too early, because because you know what it is. 
That's where the oranges are in Soaring, California. Um, so at Disney's California Adventure, there is there's a there's like a an attraction there where you get like you're like doing like basically like you do like overhead flybys of like various California like attractions. It's like you, you go over the redwoods, go to like Yosemite. One of the things you fly over is an orange field. <laughs> wow. And I'm just like, this has to be a thing for JMS's childhood. <laughs> because Valencia is along such with a that, the Winchester house. I I don't I don't know. That I mean, that might be more like a local history thing and like JMS being a history nerd. Because like Winchester is San Jose, which is like Depending on you ask, it's either NorCal or like it's it's Central California ish. It's NorCal, and then like and then Valencia is Santa Clarita County, which is like Los Angeles. So it's like they're five hours away from each other. So I'm like, I don't think JMS ever lived in San Jose, um, which it's probably like if you don't if you don't know the Winchester House because you live in San Jose, you don't because you're a dumb history nerd, <laughs> more or less, yeah, or or you're a horror nerd. I have a I have a note here. Um, of uh, why him instead of me, colon, because you're a petulant little snot, Michael Garibaldi. Yeah. Which of the 8,000 reasons do you want, you fucking goon? The fact that every conversation you've ever had with her has been you harassing her. Uh, the fact that you treat her like a piece of property. Uh... The fact that you've never apparently treated her as a priority in your relationship—which, which, which, which one? Go ahead and pick your poison. You're a shitty the way that partner. You're acting in this conversation. Yeah, the way you're acting right now. God, I fucking hate Garibaldi. I am so sick of his storyline. I am aggressively ready to not deal with Garibaldi. I had to like once I was done rewatching this episode, I just listened to a crowd of like I, I just looked it up on YouTube. I just listened to a wrestling crowd chanting, You sick fuck. You sick fuck. Yeah. More <laughs> or less. Because I like I needed to get that out of my system emotionally after he saw that Sheridan's dad. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. All right. Are we done with uh are we done with this one? Yeah. Um I think I'm done with this, like on like a spiritual level. Yeah, on a couple this, of this levels. This is wild because we've got a super good episode that is doesn't have a lot to talk about because it's like largely space battles um, yeah. mixed with this god-awful trash. Okay, so next time we are, for scheduling reasons and various other things, we're just going to be recovering one episode next time. That'll be episode 17, Face of the Enemy. Until next time, Dr. Dorian, I'd like to see you in my office. <laughs> <laughs>